Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so good morning again. Our scripture passage this morning comes from Mark chapter 10. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, that'd be great. So you can look, look on as we read together and as we look through this passage together. But if you don't, or if you want to grab the Bible in front of you, that's great too. But if not, uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder and it's on the screen behind me. If you're at home, it should be on your screen as well as we read. Uh, we're back in the Gospel of Mark. We've made it full circle. Uh, this is what we were all fall. We spent uh, the fall going through the Gospel of Mark. We're picking back up and we're going to finish at Easter time in these last few chapters. So in Mark chapter 10, you'll see similar themes to the things we've been talking about for the last number of weeks. Beginning in verse 32, let's read together. Uh, they, here is Jesus and his disciples, as they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed after were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to teach them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him. And said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Isn't that the best? We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant to us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that God's word teaches, obey all it commands, trust in all that the promises Revere all that it reveals. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So we've been doing a series on humility, if you've been around the last number of weeks. And this week we're back in the Gospel of Mark, as I've said, we're picking up where we left off in the fall. And here's one of the questions that I've gotten uh, as we've spent this number of weeks. I, I can tell when... I can tell when the, uh, the Spirit and God's Word is starting to uh, begin to really work in people's hearts because they come to me and they'll say, okay, how much longer are we going to talk about this? We get, we, they, people get weary uh, because God's working on them. But one of the questions that I've, I've had as we've finished, uh, gone throughout, I guess, gosh, two months now almost, is well, what about leadership? I mean, you keep saying we need to be humble, you know, humility is being in the background. Well, what if your role, what if your job, what if, you know, what if just the place you are in life requires you to be out front? What if it requires you to be kind of in the spotlight? That's a great question. What about, what about leadership? What about leadership? You might run a business. So think, think about where that is true for you, because for nearly every one of us in the room, there's some place in our lives where that question touches. Maybe you run a business, or maybe you're a boss, or... 
you lead the HOA, if so, I'll put you on my prayer card, you know, or you're part of the PTA, or you're a coach of a team, even like a t-ball team, or you're just a parent, or a husband or a wife. Nearly all of us have some kind of leadership role, and the question is, how do, how do humility and leadership go together? Because that is the focus of this text. If you notice where Jesus, Jesus wants to talk to them, he, he, this, this question by James and John prompt him to talk about what the rulers of the Gentiles, those who don't believe in God, what leadership among those people look like versus what it should look like among those who believe and follow him. So how do humility and leadership go together? Okay, that's our question. Now, we should start with our definition of humility again. We can say it a few more times. Humility, we've said, is the displacement of the self in the enthronement of God. It's the disappearance of the self. Humility is self-forgetfulness. It is not that you're thinking less of yourself. It's that you're thinking of yourself less. It doesn't require you to stay in the background. It means you can be in the background or in the spotlight without thinking about whether you're in the background or the spotlight. The glory of the gospel is that it can produce people who seek great things, but not great things for themselves. Great things for God, great things for the kingdom, great things for the city they live in, but in the way of Jesus. That is through serving and giving that echoes the serving and giving of Jesus on the cross. Okay, That's what this text really is teaching us here. So we want to ask, what about leadership? And you're going to see three things. You see first in James and John, it's a picture of all of our hearts, if we were honest. There's some prideful ambition that you see from these two men. Prideful ambition. But then secondly, that is contrasted with the suffering Savior. And when you see that contrast, when in light of prideful ambition, you see the reality of the suffering Savior, therefore there's this call to humble leadership. And humble leadership is really a matter of the origins and the trajectory and the tone. And so we're going to talk about each of those. Or you could put it this way. What is greatness? And then true greatness. And then your greatness. That's really what the text is about. So let's look together as we walk through first. The first thing that jumps out, the very first thing that happens is you see prideful ambition. Actually, pride has two faces. The one is obvious. The, less, the other less so. The first is what you see explicitly here with James and John as they come to Jesus with their request. Let's look at, look at it again, verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, moms, if your kids came to, me, came to you and said, Mommy, I need to ask you a question, but I want you to say yes to whatever I ask, what's your immediate thought? Oh, no. This is not going to be good. Actually, you might say, this is going to be awesome. Sure. And that's what they say. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They want a blank check. Jesus says, well, what is it? They say, verse 37, grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. Dave Harvey has written a book called Rescuing Ambition where he argues that ambition is an instinctual motivation. That it is, in fact, a noble force. It's, it, it's good to aspire to things. It's good to want to make something happen to want to be a part of something bigger than yourselves. It's, it's actually a good thing. It's part of the, the wiring of you know, all human beings made in the image of God to, to seek great things. And so ambition is not the problem. The adjectives we attach to it are. The Apostle Paul does not say, do nothing out of ambition. 
In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's a very specific word there in that verse. It refers to self-seeking. So seeking great things is a great thing, but seeking them for yourselves is a problem. James and John didn't desire the kingdom. They desired a place in the kingdom. Do you see the difference? They didn't desire the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They desired a seat of honor as the kingdom came. They had a soul hunger to be exalted above everyone else. It was a selfish ambition, a prideful ambition. They were seeking great things for themselves. And here's the problem. Prideful ambition paired with a leadership role. Any leadership role. Prideful ambition paired with A leadership role is a deadly combination. A leader who is motivated not by the mission, but by gaining a certain status is trouble. Ashley, my wife, has helped me see ways that in my parenting, I can become more concerned with whether my kids are honoring me as their father than I am with just serving and giving for them. Now, I'm repenting of that. But it can happen almost everywhere in our lives. The human heart is glory hungry because it is glory empty. And prideful ambition seeks to fill up that emptiness with achievement, with self-satisfaction, or with the praise of men, with a seat of honor from which other people can, can, you know, look upon us and admire us. And here's where this gets tricky, though. Prideful ambition is bad, but as I've said... Ambition is good. Dave Harvey goes on to write, he says, Humility, rightly understood, shouldn't be a fabric softener on our aspirations. It doesn't kill our dreams. It provides the guardrail for them, ensuring that they remain on God's road and move in the direction of his glory. So to aspire to things, to want to make stuff happen, to have an impact, these are all God-given desires. So it's just a matter of whether it becomes selfish, whether it turns in on the self. That's what a sinful heart does. It turns everything in on itself. So we have to be careful of selfishly being ambitious towards things. But we have to be careful on the other side of this too. Prideful, selfish ambition is a problem, but so is prideful avoidance. James and John make their ambitions known. That's the only difference between them and and the other ten disciples. When the other disciples learn of it, it says, verse 41, that they became indignant. They did not do what James and John did, but they were no less proud. You could say it this way, and this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but it's helpful, I think. If James and John suffered from a superiority complex, they had an inferiority complex. And both, both are two different sides of pride, okay? So humility is, humility is being careful of selfish ambition, but at the same time, humility is not hiding. Humility is not hiding. If you can throw a baseball 95 miles an hour, you better tell your high school, the high school baseball coach. I mean, humility is not sitting on the bench and never telling the coach if you can do that. In Screwtape Letters, one devil advises another. He says, the enemy, who is God, the enemy wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in the fact without being any more glad at having done it than he would be if it had had been done by another. The enemy wants him, in the end, to be so free from any bias in his own favor, that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. And that, if that's right, like in other words, if 
if what God wants for us is for us to be people who can say, you know what, that is a beautiful thing, even if I had nothing to do about it, but at the same time, be able to say, but I can do some beautiful stuff too. And to admire and to acknowledge and rejoice in the things that we're good at and the contributions that we make without feeling any self-consciousness about it, we can do it gratefully, frankly, as if we're talking about somebody else. If that's right, then denying your talents and abilities is not humility. It's self-consciously avoiding the spotlight. So Gavin Ortland describes humility as the freedom of valuing your contribution to the world alongside everybody else and every other good thing. And I love that. If you can fly, <laughs> don't hide it from the world. Fly. Don't worry about how it makes other people feel. That's their problem, not yours. Fly. Humility is not hiding. It's not self-hatred. A truly humble person doesn't need constant attention, but they don't necessarily mind being noticed. They don't need flattery, but they can sincerely receive a compliment. Somebody who can't receive a compliment is not a humble person. They are constantly minimizing, they aren't constantly minimizing themselves. Humility is not low self-esteem, because low self-esteem is no different than high self-esteem, because both low self-esteem and high self-esteem is still focused on what? Self. You got it. You're getting it. Humility is not hiding, it's not self-hatred, and it's not weakness. A person who's free to stay in the background but is also free to step into the spotlight to be center stage, that's a special kind of strength and resilience to not need to be in charge, but you can be if you're needed. A humble person is not distracted by the burdens of constant self-regard and self-assessment. You get rid of all that background noise, you make better decisions. You concentrate better, you get more done. So self-hiding, self-hatred, self-protection, these are all forms of self-preoccupation. So a humble person isn't thinking about being humble, they're not thinking about themselves at all. That's the point. Prideful ambitions can be a real problem, but so can prideful avoidance. Greatness is neither. I love, I, I, you see the quote from G.K. Chesterton there in your outline that I gave you. He says, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? That is great. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. So greatness isn't a big job. It isn't a big role. Greatness is a small self. A small self makes even small things big. A person who understands greatness approaches the small things with the same passion and intention as they do the big things, but they're not afraid of either. So be careful. See the way that pride can manifest itself in your life, either through Prideful, selfish ambition or prideful, selfish avoidance. But secondly, there's a contrast here, isn't there? There's a contrast because you see it right alongside. You see they're pushing in with selfish ambition right alongside of Jesus, who's the suffering Savior. Now, what I'm trying to describe again is so far off the map, but thankfully we have a model. We have an example right here. We see true greatness because the text actually begins up in verse 32. Where through verse 34, for the third time, Jesus is foretelling his suffering. That The scene, we're told, verse 32, occurs on the road to Jerusalem. And what you notice is, is this highlights the incongruity between Jesus' vision of the kingdom and the disciples. There's a juxtaposition, if you can remember that from English class here. Jesus, on the one hand, verse 32, talking about the cross and then... On the very, I mean, in the very same, they're walking along the road, and Jesus says, look, here's where we're going, and here's what's going to happen. And it's as, if, it's as if James and John interrupt him in his talking about his suffering, 
And while he is talking about a cross, they are asking for thrones. And it mirrors for us the wrestling in our own hearts, the desire to be exalted to a seat of honor alongside of the call from the gospel to be humble and to serve. Now, Jesus is explicit here. This is what is unique about this time. This is the third time, but this time he really goes into more detail because down in verse 45, he says, he comes back to it at the end of his interaction with with the two brothers. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a very important verse, verse 45. And it means that Jesus, who was God, the king of the universe, he did not demand royal treatment. When he came into the world, the people should have served him. That would have been right, but that's not the way it went. Jesus did not come seeking a platform or a place in the ministry where he could make a name for himself. He did not come looking for a seat of honor. He did not come to be exalted. He was exalted. And he made himself nothing, becoming a servant. Which means for us in every situation, every situation, and again, this leadership thing gets worked out in so many different ways and in so many different places, but in every situation, you have an option. You can demand to be served or you can serve. You can make sure that you are the center of attention or you can turn, and you can turn the conversation towards yourself. You can become, you know, you can, you can go, um, let me say it this way. You can, you can go into your interactions with people thinking, you know, I mean, this is a straightforward way of saying it. You're here for me. I mean, you go into every interaction, every conversation, you're here for me. Or you can say, you know, no, I'm here for you. And it happens both consciously and unconsciously. Your heart is bent towards making yourself the center and demanding that everyone else orbit around you. That is what's true of you. It's what's true of me. It's what's true of every human heart that is sinful, but not Jesus. He consciously made others the center. This was his mission statement right here. He said, I'm here for you, not me. And so you see, you see the, the juxtaposition here. We are servants who demand to be treated like kings. Jesus is the king who willingly, intentionally acted like a servant. On the night before his crucifixion, as they ate the Passover meal together, if you remember this scene, Jesus got up and he took a towel and he washed the feet of these men. It was a task assigned to the lowest ranking servant in the household, and yet Jesus, the one who spoke galaxies into existence and knows the stars by name, he did not consider himself to be above it. He did not consider that job beneath him And when he was done, in John 13, he said this to his men. He said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master. And here's what that text means. If God came washing feet, then so should we. If Jesus, the master, came not to be served but to serve, then the servants should not demand to be treated like masters they should serve too. Now that scene at the Last Supper was illustrative of the greater work of love that Jesus would accomplish the very next day. After the meal, you remember the authorities came and they arrested him. They tried him and sentenced him to death by crucifixion. Now in Acts chapter 2, in Peter's first sermon, he said that all that happened according to the foreknowledge and the definite plan of God, which means none of it happened by accident, the ultimate way 
Jesus came not to be served, but serving was to give his life. Verse 45 here, as a ransom for many. Serving and giving, humility and generosity. And you've got to know what that word ransom means. In the language of the day, it referred to bailing somebody out of jail or paying the cost or buying someone out of slavery, which means Jesus is telling us we, we're in bondage. We're in bondage to our own desires. We're in bondage to our idols. We are slaves to sin, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. You may not even be aware. But if you're not aware, that's the worst kind of bondage. And Jesus gave his life as a ransom for us. Now, the preposition there means instead of or in the place of. Put all of that together, and here's what you see. There is a sin debt that we owe to God, and the payment is death. And Jesus came to pay that payment for us, to die in our place. Now, the ancient peoples believed that the gods had to be appeased. In the Iliad, for example, Agamemnon didn't get fair winds to Troy until he sacrificed his daughter, and that appeased the wrath of the gods, and they sent the winds. But that's not what is going on here at all. Jesus didn't have to die. Um, <laughs> Jesus didn't have to die in order to win for us God's love. He had to die because God is love. That's a clunky way of saying that, but pay attention to the language. He says... The initiative of his giving his life as a ransom lies within himself. You see that? He came to do this. He freely, consciously offers his own life as the ransom price. No one takes my life from me, he said in John's gospel. I lay it down on my own accord. It was his idea. Jesus did not die so that God could love you and me. He died because God does love you and me. I mean, in the Harry Potter books or in the movies, you might be aware of Lily Potter, Harry's mother. She threw herself in front of Harry as Voldemort hurled the death curse. She sacrificed herself because she loved her son. She gave her life for him, and Jesus Christ has thrown himself in front of you to take your death curse upon himself so that you could go free. That's the gospel. That's the Christian gospel. And so James Edwards says, the reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of a servant is to give, and giving is the essence of God. That's what we learn here. I mean, that is, it's remarkable when you, when you stop to even consider it, that every act of love comes down to this. It's either them or you. And either you will make the sacrifice or they will be forced to make it. And the essence of God's heart is this. I'll do it. I'll suffer so that you don't have to. If it's, if it's you or me, let it be me. That is what God, that's what God's like. That is God's heart. And it's revealed here to us in Jesus Christ. And that leads to the third place. The third thing is that his serving and loving then inspires a certain way of life. And when it comes to leadership, it inspires a certain kind of humility in the way that we function in leadership roles all throughout our life. And let me finish with your greatness. I mentioned Lily Potter's death later in the Harry Potter anthology Harry begins to realize that he is immune from the evil and the power that Voldemort wields over everybody else. He comes to Dumbledore to ask about it, and Dumbledore tells him this. He says, your mother, she died to save you. And love, as powerful as your mother's love for you, leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. And the way that Jesus has loved us should leave its own mark on us too. And so he says 
to these men and to us down beginning in verse 42. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would become great or whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of humble, serving leadership he calls us to. And you find the humility in a number of places. You find it in the origin story and the trajectory and the tone of your leadership or of their leadership. Now let's briefly talk about each of those as we come to the close here. So first, the origin, the origin story. Every superhero has an origin story. If you're a Marvel fan, you know, I mean, all these movies being made. So Spider-Man... How did Spider-Man become Spider-Man? He was bitten by a radioactive spider. Superman was actually raised in rural Kansas, right? Every leader has an origin story. The problem with James and John is that they are seeking great things for themselves. They're not responding to God's call. And a humble leader doesn't seek leadership for themselves, but they aren't afraid of it either. They're willing to step into it, but it's not necessarily something that they make happen on their own. It's one of the features of the leaders you find in the Bible Moses and Joshua and Saul and even David to a degree and Jeremiah and you could go on and on. There was a certain hesitancy. There was a a right kind of apprehension of, oh man, I don't know if I'm up for this. Uh, you know, there was a, a feeling of weakness and smallness that came in in the in the moving into leadership. They were responding to a call, but the idea didn't necessarily come from them. They weren't eager for it. They weren't seeking a place of honor. And Jesus says here that our places are prepared for us, and we respond, and that makes all the difference in the world, but not just the origin story, but also the trajectory. Again, the scene takes place on the road to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, and it matters where a leader is going. And that's the second way that humility shows up in leadership. So if you're a leader, some questions. Is it all about you? Your success? Is the decision, does it ultimately come down to what you want? Is everybody else there just to make you look good? Leadership is a cross, at least in the kingdom of heaven it is. In marriage, for example, use that as an illustration. The man is called the head. He is the leader. But the man being the leader does not mean he makes all the decisions and his wife and his kids have to just submit to whatever he says. The man doesn't just sit on the couch while his kids fan him and rub his feet and his wife feeds him grapes while he's watching the football game. At least I hope, if that, listen, if that's going on in your house, you need to let me know, okay? We got some conversations we need to have. He's the leader, but what does it mean for him to be the leader? According to Ephesians chapter 5, being the leader means he's the number one servant. Is his job, because he's the leader, not to be there so everybody else can just take care of him and serve him. As the leader, it's his job to lay down his life for his family. And so greatness is serving. That's the job description there, verse 43. Being first means going last, verse 44. And so there are leaders who advantage themselves at the expense of others, and there are leaders who disadvantage themselves for the sake of others. But what Jesus says here is, in the kingdom of heaven, if you're going to be a part of something that is really a part of bringing heaven to earth in the way that Jesus taught us to pray, in whatever leadership role, in whatever little functional role you might have in that, the further up in the organizational chart you go, the more you serve, not less. That's what this means. But finally, not just the, over, not just the origin story, not just the trajectory, but also the tone, the vibe 
Because it says here that the rulers of the Gentiles, Jesus says they lord it over. Do you see that verse 42? They lord it over people. It's an interesting word. It just means that they, they lead through a show of power. They, they're heavy-handed. They threaten and intimidate. And it also says, verse 42, they exercise authority. And it's the same idea. These people he's describing, these people who didn't know God or believe in him, they leveraged their position and authority to coerce people into obedience. They threw their weight around. They made people afraid of them so they would obey them out of fear. It's describing a leader who doesn't listen, who doesn't communicate. They just demand obedience. But look at verse 43. Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. Now that's challenging because it is way easier to get things done the other way. (laughs) By dominating people, it's way easier to get things done in your kids by making them so afraid of disobeying you. But following Jesus, taking his cross means your leadership is gentle and patient and empathetic. It's not the best way to get things done necessarily, but hear me out, maybe getting things done should not always be the goal. What if love is the goal? What if grace really is what moves the world forward? Hmm. So now we've completely left out a few things from this text, which I'm just really discouraged by, but it's okay. We completely left out the images of the cup and the baptism in verse 38 and so forth. Now, Mark will come back to them later, so we'll get an opportunity to do that in the weeks ahead. But for now, let me just say this by way of closing this morning. Jesus, if you look there at that verse, uses both the cup and the baptism to describe his death. And there was, on the one hand, something absolutely unique about what Jesus went through on the cross. The cup is... um, Old Testament language for the wrath of God. And so when it says that Jesus drank the cup, he became, it means he became the object of God's wrath against the sin for all of all of those for whom he died. And we don't drink the same cup. We don't drink the cup of wrath because Jesus drank the cup all the way to the bottom. He's drained it. But at the same time, he says, he says, you know, you you think you're going to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? You're going to be baptized in the same baptism as me? No, the answer is no. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. But at the same time, he says, oh, but you will. You will drink the cup. You will be baptized. Now, how do you, what does that mean? How exactly do you make sense of that? And let me just finish by saying this. Jesus is saying very clearly, you do not serve the way that I serve. But if you let me serve you, you will become a servant. If you build your life on my love... And my love for you, then you will become more loving. You won't be jockeying for position. You won't always be trying to make sure everybody likes you or knows you. You won't need any thanks anymore because your heart will be so full of the glory that I can give. And so it's your job, it's your job to move out and see what people need and give it to them. That's a servant. And the power, the power to live that way comes from the love of Jesus for you. But it comes from the person of Jesus in you. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is true. You can know that you have his love, that he has secured the love of the Father for you because he drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross for you. But you can also know that because he died, and it says here he would rise on the third day and he's ascended into heaven. From heaven he has sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, if you believe, is the person of Jesus in you to baptize you into the same baptism in which he was baptized. And so listen to the hymn writer when he says, if faith be strong as well as true, then strive that love may be so too. Boast not, but meek 
and lowly be, the humblest soul is most like me. Amen. So let's pray that he would make us like him then. So, Father, we do pray as we come to the close of our service now that you would do that work in us. Send your spirit to remind us of the great truths of the gospel, that we would more and more rest our heart in the salvation of the Lord, of all that you have done through the person of Jesus, in his death upon the cross for our sins, in his rising from the grave, that we might rise too into newness of life, and the sending of the Spirit, that the very person of Jesus might live in us and make us the kind of people that he describes here, not like the Lord of the Gentiles that just go around ruling over people, throwing their weight around, frightening people into submission and obedience, but people who come underneath to love and to serve, to show grace, because we know that you resist the proud and you resist pride, but you do give grace to the humble. So help us as we lead to be humble that we might receive grace and help us as we are led to be humble that we might receive grace too, that kingdom might truly come and, the, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be a part of that. We want to see we want to see great things, but help us not seek those great things merely for ourselves, but for you and for your glory instead. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I pray that is the song of your heart as you go this morning. And so receive this benediction. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the comes of all that he has done, uh, you can be assured that these words belong to you. Now, it doesn't mean that you go and nothing's ever hard, or you don't run into any trouble. It just means that as you do, uh, you can be assured that he is working for you, that his face is turned towards you, to turn whatever hard thing that you might encounter into a good thing that both is for your good and for his glory. So receive this word, then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.